This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Rick Rule is a favorite in the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet up with Rick and get a master class from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23rd to the 27th. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. Just head over to realvision.com forward slash Rick. What's up, everybody? It's Ash Bennington. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Before we introduce our guest, all this week, we're talking about a new Real Vision, a massive upgrade coming this summer. I'm sure many of you still have plenty of questions about it, which is why we're hosting a series of town hall meetings to discuss exactly this topic. The first one took place yesterday. I was on a panel with Maggie Lake and Rao Powell. We got a lot of great questions from our visionaries, as you might imagine. If you want to know more about the platform, please check it out. Here's why it matters. Prices at Real Vision, like a lot of things in our economy, are going up this summer. If you're already a Real Vision member, you can lock in current membership at up to 50% off or level up at member-only prices before Monday, July 24th. Here's where to go to check it out, realvision.com forward slash level up all lowercase. That's realvision.com forward slash level up all lowercase. All right. Lots to talk about on that front. But now on to today's show. Joining me is Joe Chow, partner at Millennia Capital and former Fed economist. Hey, Joe, always a pleasure to have you. Welcome back to the show, man. Thanks, Ashton. Um, good, good to see you again. Great to see you as well. Okay, Joe, quick overview. Where are we right now with crypto markets and macro? Yeah, I think we have to start with, you know, where we are um, in terms of macroeconomics and just um, look at uh, financial markets and crypto assets um, through the lens of, of, of the macroeconomics environment. And so in terms of where we are in the macro, there's there's really three pieces. One is where we are in the business cycle. Uh, number the, the, the second thing is, you know, what's the Fed up to? What's the Fed's going to do? And, what, and number three is how that's going to impact asset allocations. And from that, you can sort of really figure out um, Kind of where capital is flowing in and out between traditional asset classes and digital asset classes, and that will kind of uh, give uh, a more kind of a stronger context to understanding kind of where, where we're going in terms of the digital assets economy. So starting from where we are in the in the, in the macro environment, so we're 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 at the part of the business cycle where um, Fed policy is um, has halfway permeated through through the economy. Uh, in fact, uh, Fed policy takes really eighteen months to really hit the economy. Uh, bulk of the, the bulk of the rate hikes last year uh, took place in the summer months of 2022. So the, if you recall, the Fed raised uh, rates three times consecutively by 25 uh, by 75 bps um, uh, each time. So that was uh, a two and a quarter percentage of increases in a matter of three months. Well, that the bulk of that uh, rate hikes took place in the summer months of 2022. So you would expect that um, those rate hikes to really hit the economy in the second half of this year, 2023. So we're still not there yet. So in the next coming six months, we'll see many more 
um, uh, impact by Fed policy on the real economy, whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, corporate default rates, whether it's consumer lending, uh, borrowing uh, costs. So that's kind of where we are is we're not yet through um, this part of the cycle where the Fed policy is going to impact the real economy. So the second part is what, what's the Fed going to do? Uh, and what the Fed is going to do is, you know, the, I mean, the Fed, in my view, is almost done with rate hikes in this cycle. Um, uh, they see two more rate hikes. I mean, you know, the market seems to think that there's probably one rate hike, but whether if there's one rate hike or two rate hikes coming, uh, we're probably almost done with rate hikes. It's like you're driving um, out of the tunnel. You can see the lights, you know, whether it's another five minutes in the tunnel or two minutes, like we're almost there. And so I think this is the time when the market has already uh, begun to look at 2024 interest rate environments and making calculations for asset allocations. So lastly, from an asset allocation standpoint, from an, uh, uh, asset allocators, whether it's pension funds, endowments, foundation, family offices, and, and even retail, retail investors are already thinking about what 2024 looks like from a macroeconomics and financial markets standpoint. And what they're, what they're thinking and what they're doing is that they see certainty with respect to what the Fed's going to do in the next 12 months. They see that rates are peaking. We're, we're maybe not done completely, but we're almost done. And that they're, they're beginning to go back into the financial markets and making uh, decisions. Um, and, and so that's why you're seeing sort of um, the markets uh, uh, becoming a little bit stronger, risk uh, appetite, uh, uh, risk uh, taking kind of uh, coming back to the market a little bit. The NASDAQ's up, the S&P's up. And so I think we're, to, to summarize it, we're, we're, we're at a part of the, uh, the business cycle where investors are becoming more certain about what the Fed's going to do in the next six to 12 months. And they're beginning to plan ahead. And, um, um, and, and that's why you're seeing more financial markets activities. And so in, with that as a backdrop in terms of digital, digital assets, you know, you're seeing uh, digital assets as one of the sub-asset classes benefiting from the increased investor confidence. That's why you see Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of going up to like 30,000 and 2,000 respectively is, is you're seeing risk, uh, digital assets moving in tandem with the NASDAQ and, and the S&P because of all those macro backdrops. Um, and so that's sort of a macro perspective of what's happening in my view um, between digital assets and, and, and traditional financial assets. Joe, that's about as concise and expansive a summary as one's likely to hear in five minutes about the general macro backdrop. Let me just see if I get this right in terms of the context that you frame. I hear you talking about this in three parts. Number one, the general overall macroeconomic state of where we are today. Number two, the Fed reaction function to that in terms of policy action on the monetary side. And then number three, the impact that it has on asset allocation throughout markets, digital and capital markets. So, you know, as you frame this out, as you describe this, uh, you mentioned this idea of the lags. Uh, this is what Jay Powell notoriously has called long and variable lags between monetary policy and the impacts of monetary policy. That's one of the challenging sort of tricky cycles uh, aspects of this that's difficult to pinpoint, difficult to sort out. We're in this period right now where markets are pricing the probability of one more rate hike uh, in at the 726 meeting. That's the next meeting in July uh, 26th, uh, some five days from now next week. Uh, right now, looks like it's priced. I'm looking right now at my Bloomberg terminal uh, at almost 100 percent, 96. That means 25 basis points. Current target rate Five to 500 to 525, effective rate about 5.08. That means it looks like we're going based on market probability to roughly five and a half percent. That's about right. And, and you know, the next rate hike is almost baked in. Um, I think right. there's um, two things I would say, which is, you know, as a, you know, having, you know, worked on many, many FOMC meetings like uh, behind the scenes. Um, the, uh, the lag effect is always like one of the underpinnings to 
financial uh, and macroeconomics. Um, you know, the Fed chairman, the Fed governor, the economists have always known for decades and for even almost a century. And so that's always been like one of the considerations they they they, they put on the table when they think about uh, monetary policy. And so and so there's and so yeah. So what that means is uh, if they rate if they raise rates, the impact to to achieve a, a, an economic objective that the objective may not take place for 12 to 18 months. Right. And that is why if you if we go back to the 1990s and 2000s with the way Alan Greenspan used to operate um, was he was actually opaque. And I think he did it for a reason that because he was opaque because he he realized, he, you know, there's a saying in monetary policy, you want to be opaque and you want to be, uh, you want to seek moderation. You don't want to go too extreme on either uh, spectrum. You don't want to go too easy or too, or too tight. You want to seek a good moderation in policy because these policy uh, actions have such a long lasting effect on the economy that you really want to wait and see before you kind of right. react. And so that's why, like, you know, the Fed realizes and, and, and market, uh, and I think CEOs know that, uh, the, the private markets also know that, and that the private uh, sector also knows that we're going to see many more actual impact by Fed policy coming to, coming, coming to the market in the next six to 12 months, and that we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, and so that's why it's still good to be uh, prudent and cautious uh, right. by the same time, but, but to know that like we're halfway through, but we're not completely through um, the, the, the Joe, this is why I'm so glad to have you here because you're someone who's actually been in the room, helped prepare the data, helped prepare the statements. This is what's so interesting to me about where we are today. As everyone knows, uh, the Fed still perceives that inflation in the economy is too high. Here's the unusual part about this particular moment. We're pricing in, essentially, as you say, baking in one more rate hike. But then when you look at the forward curve uh, of the futures market, it's pricing in rate cuts. How do the folks in the room at the Fed think about that phenomenon? How do they take it into account? And above all, what does it mean for asset prices going forward? Great question. I mean, this is a very, very good question. I think this question should be, should be mentioned, talked about way more in, in the press. So one of the things that you don't hear a lot in the press, and which one of the things I, I like to just to say is that financial market indicators like these you know, forward rates and, you know, whether it's you know, OIS or SOFOR LIBOR or whatever it is that, that people may be looking at. There's several of these market-based indicators, in my view, are always biased. Now, why are they biased? They're biased because uh, these rates are derived from Wall Street institutions, banks and hedge funds and, and, and you know, buy side and, and sell side who are trading on these assets that have a view on the Fed policy. But these are the same people, the same institutions who benefit from an, from an easier, uh, uh, from a sort of Fed policy changes, whether that introduces more volatility so they can trade on it, or whether it's a looser monetary policy so that equity managers um, you know, can gain on the upside. So, 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 so in my view, um, and I, that, that the market-based indicators, like these forward rates, um, uh, you know, derivatives-based uh, uh, rates, are not, are, are not only volatile, but less credible because they're, guessing what the Fed's going to do. And they're also biased because the same, the same inputs are by, by institutions who have, who are, you know, who have in a way a conflict of interest with what the underlying rate in, in the economy is because they see the benefit if rates change in, in that direction. And so the Fed definitely, in my view, um, you know, I think puts less emphasis on uh, market-based um, uh, expectations. And so these market, so it, so what that what that means logically is that these market-based uh, rates 
have a bigger impact on the financial markets than on the Fed's actual reaction functions. Uh, okay, okay, I'll give you one analogy. If I am the principal of a, of a school and the, all the students are saying, hey, we got to get out of class earlier, would you bend to that pressure? Or would you be like, if I'm the principal, I'm in charge? And so I just don't think that the Fed really, uh, the Fed will definitely consider because all those numbers are reported to the Fed, but they will make their own decisions based on economic objectives. Well, I guess it depends just how unruly the students are on any given day. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> Uh, Joe, I really appreciate the insight that you have from being in the room about this. And But when you see, let me ask you this, and as we start to think about the, the asset pricing aspect of this, uh, what markets begin to telegraph in terms of that conversation, maybe that dialectic between the Fed uh, and Wall Street institutions, when you have this pricing in of a reversal, a hike, and then a series of cuts being priced on the back end, how do markets react to that If as you now in sort of wearing your new hat, which is allocating capital, how do you think about that challenge? Great question. So, so I think uh, the other part of your question, your previous question, which I didn't um, touch on, which I apologize, is 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 how does a the market pricing rate cuts earlier impact financial market assets? So basically, to take a step back, what, what the Fed has been saying is we're going to hold the rates long for high. What the market's been saying is based on these derivatives, how they trade. Right. The market's been saying the Fed's going to cut rates earlier than they say. And so do you believe in the market? Do you believe the Fed? Well, I think the, the Fed probably has a little bit more leverage here because they're the ones who control the rates. And the market is sort of, you know, is, is putting a, a probability based on what the Fed's going to do. Um, but 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 if but a lot of the financial market assets are are priced on market-based expectations. And so because market-based expectations, like these, um, you know, whether it's inflation rates or whether it's 10-year treasury. Are pricing are pricing a, a Fed cut that the Fed might, that the Fed may not come to. What that would mean is all things equal, financial markets are getting ahead of themselves, and they're probably getting. If you're an equity asset, you're probably getting overpriced. Um, but again, you know. But I would say whether a financial market is fairly priced or or, or overpriced is really marginal, uh, because let's say uh, the market, uh, let's say a ten-year treasury, let's say a two-year treasury is trading at. 4.8%, but in two years, the Fed may be at 4.6. Well, that delta, the accuracy between the market and the Fed is maybe only in a matter of basis points. So because it's so small, it wouldn't have a huge impact on financial market assets. Right. But, but financial market assets are, 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 are a lot of it are based on uh, these market-based uh, measures, like these, these two-year treasury uh, uh, yields. Well, I guess it comes down to this almost philosophical question. What do you believe? What I tell you I'm going to do or what I've done in the past? And that's correct. And, and that's why there's always volatility in financial markets. You know, that's why there's always room to trade and make money. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, talking about asset pricing, uh, you know, and the question of whether things are overpriced, underpriced, fairly priced, always an interesting conversation. It's a little bit philosophical, uh, but what we can look at is historical performance. Here's where we are right now. Year to date on the S&P 500 up uh, nearly 18 and a half percent as we've just passed the H1 point, the first half of this year, NASDAQ 100 red hot. It's up uh, over 41%. Obviously, there's uh, something worth talking about here uh, in terms of digital asset markets because of the correlation to digital assets. Bitcoin on the year up some 80 plus percent. Uh, Ethereum on the year up uh, nearly 58%. Uh, obviously, those, uh, those returns on the uh, SPX and NASDAQ 100, significantly above the average annualized performance for the year. And yet here we are sitting just a little bit past the halfway mark, red, red hot.
Yeah, and I think, you know, just like last year when I was on your show, you know, one of my hypotheses, one of the hypotheses that many market commentators, you know, we, we would talk about is that Bitcoin and Ethereum were becoming mature financial assets that they were following the NASDAQ. And so just like when NASDAQ felt last year, Bitcoin really and Ethereum really declined. Now that NASDAQ and, and, and S&P have rebounded, if it's at 18% and 41% respectively, that, that Bitcoin and Ether have rebounded. So if there's a high correlation, whether you can debate whether that should be the case, but there's, if you look at it from an empirical data standpoint, if you just run a regression, right. there's a high correlation between the two, the two asset classes. Hey, talking about uh, empirical data, we've got some folks in the background wondering about your background, Joe. Paul just said it's like a, it's like a window into the future. That's, uh, that's pretty uh, cosmic. Tell us a little bit about your background, what you did at the Fed, uh, and how you made this transition into private markets. For sure, I spent uh, uh, several years in, in DC and uh, worked in, the, uh, um, in, the, in a group uh, that was responsible for uh, helping the board of governors and the chair uh, uh, formulating um, monetary policy. So what that meant was looking at, you know, a lot of things, that, the way I think about markets, a lot of things I, a lot of the ways I think about the markets, a lot of the ways I analyze the markets were, uh, were you know, were, were, were things I learned at, at, the, at the FRB, the, the Fed, at the Federal Reserve Board, FRB, um, where, um, so, so the way that the groups operated was you, um, you really operate on this FOMC cycle. So every eight weeks, sorry, every six weeks, excuse me, there's eight meetings a year, six weeks, every six weeks, there's an FOMC meeting. So really the staff kind of uh, have their um, routines kind of revolving um, uh, around that, that schedule. So like literally every three weeks before the FOMC meeting, we would all get really busy gathering data about the state of the macroeconomic, the economic data and the financial market data. And then we would then talk to Wall Street and have a view about financial markets and how that impacts how Fed policies really permeate through the economy and the markets of the economy. So a lot of things I describe are things I kind of I used to work on, I learned. And so I, you know, as a staffer, like working on, in the monetary policy group, working for the governors and then the chair, like you, you have great exposure to what's going on. I mean, you don't have a vote, but you sort of like work behind the scenes. And, you know, um, for me, I was fortunate that when I, early in my career, I um, you know, I tend to have a pretty good memory and I worked on these things in about eight, 10, 12, whatever, many times. And after, you know, two, three times of working on these FOMC meetings, you know, you kind of memorize the routine and you just sort of like know what to do and you just get a lot faster. So for me, I was fortunate to have worked on many of these FOMC meetings in the 2010 to 2015 era. So that was when uh, 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 the economy was weak, rates were low, but there was a juicy economy. Um, and so you kind of learned how, how the Fed was thinking about these things. But now in, in, this, in, part, in this part of the cycle, in 2021 and 2023, we have the opposite problem, which is the economy is too strong. They're trying to uh, raise rates to kind of calm the economy. So in a way, you can, you can sort of think that what the Fed is doing now is the inverse of what they were doing 10 years ago. And so if you can right. sort of just right. extrapolate, that's why a lot of the market reaction functions are similar, but not exactly the same, because one is going forward, one is going backwards. Um, and then I just wanted to put that into use and I went to decided to go to transition to, towards the private sector, spent a number of years in consulting and banking and uh, private equity. And now uh, recently, a few years ago, started Millennia, which is we, we look at macroeconomics, and we, but, we, but we trade in private markets. Right. So it's, you know, from uh, hiking to cutting, from easing to tightening, uh, that's the, the full breadth of the cycle that you've now witnessed. Uh, let's talk a little bit about private markets, which you just mentioned. I think it's an important indicator. It's something that folks uh, who are out there maybe watching the news cycle don't have access to, harder to benchmark. Talk a little bit about what you see for this economy in private markets and what's its impact on the digital asset crypto space. So, so digital assets, 
years, there's been um, what I would call a, a consolidation or washout. Uh, you know, the stronger companies are staying. Some of the weaker companies have have, have gone, and some of the people um, have recycled and joined stronger companies where they're starting new businesses. That means we're still talking to many entrepreneurs who are starting new Web3 DeFi companies. And so that ecosystem has consolidated, but it hasn't gone away. But independently, what's happening now in the private markets is AI has become uh, big and fierce and strong. <laughs> and it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's literally what everyone's talking about. So I think for the context of this show, you know, we, can, we can think about how like AI and Web3 and DeFi and crypto and blockchain are going to interact. One of the things that one of the, so, so I mean, you know, blockchain crypto is its own industry. AI is its own innovation and its own industry. Right now, the two uh, industries are uh, exclusive. They're not like interacting much, but right. many people are trying to figure out how would you, um, because these are two valid technologies. One is blockchain, yeah. one is AI. And, uh, block, and so the way to think about it is blockchain is a horizontal layer distributed technology uh, that helps with transactions and, and proof of trust. AI is more of a vertical te technology where you can run data and train, train an AI to become really smart. So people are trying, investors and entrepreneurs are trying to figure out how do you marry the mirrors of AI and blockchain? And there's many theories and people are working on that. But I think, and I was talking to Ash earlier, you know, um, before the show, just to catch up, the entrepreneurs and the VCs who can figure out how you marry AI with blockchain will, will have a lot of success in the coming decade. Yeah, I think that's just absolutely spot on, Joe. And it's something that it just seems so obvious. You, I mean, you literally, and it's it's interesting when you look at just sort of mainstream media, right? You've got uh, all these articles being written uh, by folks saying things like, you know, we have this new technology in AI uh, that makes understanding of what truth really is very difficult to understand. We've got a whole group of people uh, in the blockchain space who are saying, hey, listen, our whole raison d'etre here is to figure out what a source of truth looks like, how it works, how it functions, how it gets voted on. Uh, and so it seems just so obvious that these two technologies are going to merge at least on that point and, and probably quite frankly, myriad other ways in which they're going to be integrated. Another, I think very obvious one when you talk about, uh, you know, just two groups of people saying different things. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you think about uh, some of the security flaws that we've seen in the DeFi space, the obvious uh, opportunity here is for AI to go in and do code audits, figure out, and that you know might be an interesting thing because you might have this war uh, between the offensive AI and the defensive AI. I mean, it's just an incredibly interesting moment to be alive, to see these technologies. As you say, I think the, the worlds right now are largely divided. It seems like different groups of folks who are interested in them, working on them, investing in them. However, in the future, that may converge. Yeah, and I think I, I you know, I'll be honest with you that like, I've been more excited this year about the private markets than I did um, last year, because you know honestly, before OpenAI kind of blew things up with with with, with AI, I mean AI was still around, but it just didn't have the mass, the massive sort of acceptance adoption of of of, 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 of if you would. I think what right. OpenAI right. OpenAI's biggest contribution, and there's competing AI tools. OpenAI is only one. It's, it's the most prominent. Is that it gave every consumer, every person, the chance to play with it themselves for free. And once every, and then based on like the social proof theory, everyone plays with it. Everyone was, you know, moderately impressed with it. Is GPT the perfect tool? No, but it's more of a, uh, a minimal viable product. That's like a venture capital term. MVP. It's like the, right. the bare bone product that works. And so, so, so really, OpenAI GPT was an MVP that worked, that established what it is and the potential of it, and people were impressed by it. But really, in five to ten to 15, 20, 50 years. When AI tools mature, 
there will be way more sophisticated than GPT is. Yes. And so, and so, and and so there's you know two kind of um ways that a lot of VCs and I go to a lot of these VC conferences. I'm a VC. Uh, we're, we're thinking about that AI can really converge with uh, blockchain. Um, one is that you can actually one of the dangers of AI. The, well, the first one is one of the dangers of AI is how do you keep AI in check that it doesn't just you know, overtake overtake the world that, that it doesn't right. you know teach itself bad things and just overrule us humans. Well, what if you train AI on the blockchain? where the blockchain is basically a set of rules that tells you what you can or cannot do. So what if you train the, train the AI, kind of an artificial human, artificial, artificial brain on the blockchain that has a set of rules for what the AI can or cannot do, then even if there's no, no human, human involvement, no um, uh, human supervision, the blockchain will still be able to regulate AI. So that's one of the ways theoretically that these two markets can work together. So basically you're talking about essentially a kind of blockchain guardrails uh, where blockchain becomes a kind of a verified data set that the artificial intelligence can explore and you know that it won't jump outside of that sandbox. Correct, because think about it, AI is really just a lot of code training on data. So the code and the memory becomes really smart, but all that data has to run on the internet or on technology, uh, on, a, on a database. So right now the database they're using would be like Oracle database. But what right. if you have replaced that with a blockchain database where the database will have a set of guardrails that tells AI what you can what you can or cannot do? Because one of the dangers of AI is let's say we're all sleeping and the AI just teaches itself to do XYZ, shut down all the electrical grids. Well, right. what the blockchain is saying, you can't do that. And, right. and so even if there's no humans watching it, let's say we're all like we all just sleep for like an hour the entire world. The block the blockchain is still alive because it's, an, it's a live internet and the AI is still trained on top of that. So that's one of the ways that like these two sectors could interact. Yeah, it's funny. We had an AI engineer who talked about something. I think he called it the uh, the, the killer Roomba paradox, which is, you know, you have a super smart Roomba vacuum cleaner. Uh, and after uh, a few iterations of cleaning your house, your apartment, it decides that the source of all of the dirt in your apartment, the source of all the uncleanliness is you and your pets. So it decides, right. you know, murder the whole family. And I, listen, it's right. a joke, obviously, but there's a kernel of truth in it uh, that makes it uh, that makes it terrifying and interesting as well to figure out how to solve that problem. I know we've gotten caught up in this conversation. I should have said this earlier. Uh, by the way, put down your questions in the chat. We'll ask the best ones on the air. Remember, Real Vision members take priority. If you're not a Real Vision member yet, go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto it's free and will remain so we're committed to putting out this high quality content for everyone to see uh so uh this is of course where you're able to watch the latest Rao pal adventures in finance before anyone else new episodes premiere every friday uh joe we've got a question actually that's just come in and i want to ask you this just get our audience involved uh, how do you how close do fed economists work with fed traders like joseph wang do they interact much <laughs> Really interesting question. Uh, <laughs> mechanics of how things work. Well, Joseph Wang is not Joseph Chow, so we're. Uh, I've actually got that question before. I, uh, I I looked up his background. I think I think I think he was there uh, a few years after I left. Um, but um, but by the way, uh, for people who don't know, tell tell that story. Oh, oh, Joseph Wang is. Um, I think um, th this guy has a Twitter, right? He has he has like a blog. So he was a trader on the Fed's trading desk. Um, and I I, I I've read his research. They, they're pretty good. He he clearly understands. The um, the plumbing is behind the financial system, and he's written that on that on, on blogs and Twitter, and and I've I've read some of his, some of his research is pretty good. I think, you know, I think a lot of what the well, so there's the way to think about it is 
the Fed traders, and there's a, there's, there used to be an, a, an inside branding joke, aren't really traders. When you think about a trader, you're thinking someone like who's a, a prop trader or hedge fund trader where they're buying for their right. own profit maximization, where they're making a market to make a spread. But Fed traders aren't really traders in the sense that they aren't maximizing profits. They're just like buying right. bonds to juice the economy, to put you know, liquidity into the system, where they're, um, there's all these like reverse repo facilities that the Fed uses to better control the uh, different interest rates in the economy. So there used to be a joke that Fed traders aren't like your traditional Wall Street traders. They're actually more economists. They're more financial market analyst economists slash traders. Joe, the point you're making here, if I understand it correctly, is that essentially traders uh, at the Fed are not trading for the expectation of profit or the objective of profit. They're trading essentially to implement policy in open market operations. In other words, you have a group that decides on monetary policy, and then the traders at the Fed uh, implement that through open market operation trading. It isn't the same as what you would do uh, if you worked for a hedge fund, for example. Correct. So, so sorry. Uh, so, 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 take to take a step back. So, the New York Fed is one of the 12 reserve banks that is you know what you call first among equal it's the most important uh reserve bank so the, so the so the fomc has seven governors from dc and 12 reserve banks presidents as members uh but the uh but uh the uh there's 12 reserve banks san francisco cleveland new york the new york fed president is like the most important president president that's been that's, that's well documented in you can google it you can, you can read all the academic research it's uh, the Fed, uh, the New York Fed's uh, president is always the FOMC's vice chairman. And so what, how, how this relationship works is the board of governors uh, and then the, I mean, sorry, the FOMC will make a decision on, let's say, QE or uh, QT um, to juicy, uh, to print money or to withdraw liquidity or to, to buy more assets. Uh, so then it's the job of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, um, the most important uh, reserve bank uh, in the system to carry out that um, the actual doing of that policy. And so the right. Reserve Bank, uh, the New York uh, Fed has a group called the Markets Group. Um, and you can actually link in a lot of these people. Their job titles are usually uh, uh, traders slash analysts. A lot of these people, and I used to work with these people very closely, uh, tend to have a master's degree in economics or law. Uh, they have probably have, they probably gone to John Hopkins site. They, they went to Princeton, they went to Harvard Kennedy School. They went to Columbia SIPA. So a lot of them are like, non-PhD level economists, but they're more practitioners. So they work on a trading desk. I think it's on the 11th floor at the New York Fed's building, because I've been there once, um, where they will literally just take, let's say, let's, say, let's say the Fed was like, hey, we're going to print $85 billion a month. We're going to do $85 billion of QE a month. This is back in 2014. Then basically the, 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 trading, the trading desk would then uh, go out to the market to, to Goldman Sachs, take Morgan, Morgan Stanley with that order to be like, hey, we're going to buy um, well, since we're buying $85 billion a month, um, what if you divide it into 21 business days, that's basically $4 billion a day. So they're like, well, you know, every day I have a $4 billion check. I'm going to buy, you know, half a billion from Morgan Stanley, uh, uh, MBS desk. I'm going to buy half a billion dollars from Goldman Sachs. And then once the traders uh, buy these um, MBS securities from Goldman Sachs, then the, the Federal Reserve wires the funds to the, the account at Goldman Sachs. And then the Goldman Sachs wires the securities to the Fed, so the Fed puts them on the balance sheet. That's why you see the balance sheet going up. And so that's kind of that's QE. So you're taking right. uh, securities out of the system, you're putting liquidity into the system, you're putting cash. And so the trading desk really just 
executes on that. And then right. every day, the, the desk will kind of write a lot of research and inform the board of governors on market um, kind of reactions. So there you go, Paul, get a great inside answer to the question, policy creation, policy execution. Uh, by the way, I should say, uh, for people interested in Joseph Wang, if you're a member of Real Vision, I hosted a debate between Cullen Roach and Joseph Wang on the Real Vision platform. It was a great debate. Uh, I remember uh, it was just sort of very detailed, very respectful, very polite, but all very dense in information uh, in terms of the, the mechanics of the way the Fed works. So if you're interested in this topic and you're interested in hearing what Joseph Wang, an actual trader, at the New York Federal Reserve had to say, go and check out that conversation. I have to tell you, Joe, it's always a pleasure to have you here, man. We got to get you back more frequently. Uh, you always have a lot that's really interesting to say about the intersection between markets and macro and increasingly technology, uh, AI, blockchain, and others. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with here today. Mm, I think this is probably one of the most exciting times in investing is we're coming out of this, like the last business cycle from the 20s until the 2020, we had a market, we had a pandemic, we had a market reset. And now, um, the, you know, the market has kind of, kind of reset, we're kind of rebounding, and you're seeing this new, uh, what I call petri dish of, of, of technology enabled or called AI. And right now, there's so few companies working on AI, there's many, many more, but I would expect to see many, many unicorns and IPOs to come out of the AI petri dish where, you know, petri dish is like, you know, it's like there's, New cells populating right now. There's so few companies. There's open AI. There's Antrap. There's a few. Stability AI. There's you know Cohere. But there's many companies being built on top of that. So we're really excited about um, the state of the market where we're investing in AI in, in technology companies that hopefully will become the market leaders in, in five to ten years and go public. We're coming out of this market reset, and and this was a mildly moderate you know recession or reset. It's not a recession. It's a reset. And so as an investor, like we're, we're very excited about um, the macro market, uh, macro environment stabilizing and seeing many, many opportunities in AI and technology that we could be investing in. And, and because we're an investor, we're here to you know, maximize profits. Like we, we, we are we're excited about the exit outcomes for some of these AI companies that we're investing in, you know, you know, that will hopefully come to fruition in the next five to 10 years. Joe Chamelin, Capital, very well said. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Ash. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great weekend. Rick Rule. Rick Rule is a favorite of the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet Rick and get a masterclass from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23 to 27. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. Just head over to realvision.com slash Rick for tickets. That's realvision.com slash Rick.